0: If we haven't met yet, my name is Mark, and um, it has been my joy to serve as one of the pastors and elders here for the last 24 years. And I'm excited to be able to bring this message this morning. I want to give you a little heads up uh, on the message. And Abby, I'm going to ask, can you help me with that with the timer? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I want to give you a heads up on where we're going the next few weeks with the messages. So. Um, we've been these last three weeks in this sort of uh, intermittent series that we drop into once in a while called Life Along the Way that helps us as disciples in just various things that come up along the way following Jesus. So we've been talking about generosity. We'll do a little more of that in a moment. Next Sunday is Easter, so we'll focus on Jesus and <clears throat> the wonderful news of his resurrection. And then after Easter, the two Sundays after that, we're going to do a little more life along the way, but not on the topic of generosity, but on the topic of sacraments, on the Lord's Supper and baptism. What are these sacraments? Why do we observe them? What do they mean? How do they differ? And why are we doing that now? Well, one real practical reason is these little do it yourself communion rip and dip things that we've been using since COVID, we're about to go back to the to a different way, the old way of doing this. It's going to be a little different. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's going to change the way that works during the service. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> but with it comes the question, hey, is it appropriate, and parents often wonder this, is it appropriate for a child who's professing faith in Christ but not been baptized to receive the Lord's Supper? That's an important question. And so there's some questions that have arisen around the sacraments. And so uh, April 9th, I'll do a message on baptism, and then April 16th, Justin will do one on the Lord's Supper. And then April 23rd, we're going to resume the Gospel of Mark series called Follow Me. So that's what's coming. As we get uh, going with the third message in this generosity series, I just want to mention two books that are in the bookstore that are extremely helpful. Uh, The Treasure Principle was written... Uh, Probably twenty or so years ago, and many of us have greatly benefited from this. It's a short little book that will really help you find joy in giving, and you can also find joy in the price because at Amazon it's thirteen bucks, but we're selling it for three. Okay, so that's that's there, and then the Generosity Project. This is really cool. This is a book that's designed not to be read just by an individual, but to read with some others so you can be talking about God's word to us about generosity. Amazon's got it for 17 RGCU bookstore, 8 bucks. Okay? So those are in there too. All right? So with that <coughs> now... We're going to have the scripture reading. Now, today's message is going to be a little different than most of the other messages. Usually, we just start with the text and unpack that. Today, we're starting with a question, and we're working through several texts to answer that question. And so, you're actually going to hear four, four short scriptures that Martha's gonna, Martha Weaver is going to read for us now. So, Martha, please come and bring God's word to us.
1: Malachi. Malachi. 3 verses 7 through 10. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Philippians 1, verse 27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Galatians 6, 6 and verse 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the precious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Now, as we prepare to pray, those scriptures may seem disparate and disconnected, but they actually do tie together. Each of these scriptures speaks to us about how God's people unite to support God's mission to make his name great. And we unite in one fashion, we unite through financial giving. So that's what this is about. So let's, let's pray. Father, as we gather here on the Lord's Day, as we gather here as disciples of Jesus Christ, part of the church of Jesus Christ, we recognize <coughs> we're not here for ourselves, but we're here to make your name great. We pray that as a result of this message and this gathering and this church that the nations would be glad in Jesus Christ. That's our passionate plea and request. Further that end through this message, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been for the last three weeks talking about generosity and money. And this isn't easy to do, is it? It's not easy to hear sermons about this. And if you think it's hard to hear sermons about this, try giving sermons about this. That's not easy either. Talking with some friends this week, and one of them said, yeah, when I was a kid, there was a church meeting held in my house, and a bunch of church members were there. And the church leader that came in uh, came in and said, we've got this project that we need to fund in the church, and nobody's leaving this room until the money's committed. Another, another friend said, "Yeah, I remember growing up in my church, there were times when they would post the people's names and how much they were giving. So if you have a background like that, you're cringing right now at, at the prospect of this message. If you've walked into this church for the first time, with the perspective, oh, Christians, all they care about is money, and this is the first sermon you're hearing? So, can you appreciate? It? This is a challenging topic for all of us to, to, to bring up. But there are reasons to do this, and I'm not gonna apologize for doing this. Jesus Christ is on a mission to reclaim every square inch of the lives of his disciples. And the financial part of our lives isn't off-limits to him. It's part of what he wants to bring under his loving rule. Now, what's triggered this series is, at the end of last year, there was a, a dip in, in giving to the church here. No crisis. Church is in a financially healthy place. But it got the elders' attention. We decided to do a little study without looking at anybody's names and just discovered that there was a pattern where there were a significant number of uh, members who were not on record as having given to the church in the last year. And we just began to talk and pray. What, what do we do about that? And we thought it would be good to have a short series to seek to get God's perspective on generosity and to begin to normalize talking about it. And this is just one piece of a series of things that we'll be doing over the coming months, because we just want to make it easier and more normal to talk about generosity and giving. Now, the reality is, in some ways, it's easy to talk about financial things with each other, isn't it? We talk about financial needs. Would you pray with me? My car broke down. I need a new job. I need a new place to live. Those kinds of things are easier to bring up. But talking about giving and generosity, that, that's, a, that's a much difficult topic to learn how to engage and we want to just begin to normalize that not in a weird way and always motivated by grace. And so in this series we can't cover everything. This is the third of three messages, but these messages do fit together and they are cumulative. They they build on one another. So if you haven't heard the other messages, I want to encourage you to go back and when you get a chance listen to those. But just by way of brief summary, the first message we heard Jesus say Hey, don't be like that rich fool who thought by having a whole bunch of money and wealth he would be set. He wasn't set because there was a day coming when he needed to give account to his maker. So Jesus said, be on guard against greed and invest in heavenly treasures. And then last week, we heard counsel from the Apostle Paul writing to the church uh, in Ephesus through, through Timothy saying, hey, Christians, remember, the gospel sets us free to live generously. And so the call then is to be rich in good works, generous, and ready to share. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the Christian life? Rich in good works, generous, and ready to share. So the gospel sets us free from being curved in on ourselves so that we can look out and look up. Be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Today, the question is much more focused. The topic is more focused. Should I tithe to my church? So think about kind of, there's a logic to this. We've heard God's call to generosity and how the gospel sets us free to be generous, and that raises questions, doesn't it? Well, okay, if God's calling me to be generous, well, where? Where should I give? And how much? How often? Things like that. These things come up. And the reality is there are lots of ways and places we can be uh, giving, right? Um, Giving to your, uh, if you've you've graduated from college, they would love you to keep giving money back to them. (coughs) There are um, things like cancer research that we might want to give to or caring for the poor Uh, strengthening and supporting missionaries out on the field, planting new churches. There are organizations we might want to support like Rancho 3M or For the Nations or Alliance Defending Freedom or any of a number of other organizations. Here's the question I want to put before you this morning. Where does giving to your church, your local church, your home church, where does giving to your church fit in your priorities for giving? That's the question we want to engage this morning. And I want to give you up front the answer that the elders have worked on, and I'm speaking on behalf of the eldership this morning. I want to give you the answer, and then I want to uh, unpack how we got there from Scripture. The answer that we, we want to provide this morning to that question is this. We believe it's a wise practice, hear that, a good rule of thumb, a wise practice to make giving to your local church your first priority in giving. We believe there's a priority that God gives to us in His Word about where we give, and it starts with giving to the to your home church. Now, we want to prove that from Scripture, and I'm going to be limited in what I can do this morning. We're going to look in several different places. We're going to try to stitch together several different pieces. So this message is going to have a different feel from it than our usual messages, but What's similar is the authority is the same. It always comes from God's Word. So I want to encourage you to test what I'm saying by what you find in God's Word. And if you have questions, please come talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to a trusted friend. These things we want to work out in community. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start with an Old Testament perspective on giving. You know, your Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Jesus Christ is kind of right in the middle. Okay, and so we're going to look in the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. uh, And uh, Martha began by reading this passage from Malachi 3, 7 through 10. This helps sort of summarize for us God's perspective on giving for believers before Jesus came on the scene. Verse 7 says, from the days of your fathers, so he's reaching back about a thousand years, You've turned aside from my statutes and you've not, not kept them. So Israel didn't have a great track record in following God. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So God, still gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, is saying, hey, it's not too late. You can still come back. But you say, how? How should we return? And he says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. It's a pretty serious charge. God is telling the people that they're robbing him. And They say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. So let's think about what's being said here. God's telling them that they're robbing him. What's what's going on? Israel had been sent away in exile because of their sin. They'd been brought back to Jerusalem. They'd rebuilt the temple And they were going through the motions religiously, but they were really just uh, living them out in an empty sort of way. This is dead orthodoxy. These are religious people who are just doing the outer things than the minimum necessary. It's kind of similar to the cultural Christianity that's common in our country and in our day where many people may claim to be Christians, but really live very, uh, their lives may be not much different from what goes on in the rest of the culture. And so God is very specific in other parts of the letter, what He's expecting from them. But here, He says, you're robbing me. Now, what does that mean? What's He saying to them when when they say, well, how are we robbing you? Well, in the tithes and contributions. The word tithe, if you've not heard that word before or aren't real familiar with it, the word tithe literally means one-tenth. It's a math number. It's 10%. And so In Israel, when God set up Israel, when they came out of slavery in Egypt and he set them up to be a people in the promised land, you can read in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy how he set in motion this system of tithes and offerings. And so the typical family would have been giving 10% and more, in some cases maybe 20% or maybe even more, of whatever they were Receiving as income. And remember, they were farmers and sheep herders, and so they, they, they may not have had cash, but they might have had crops or they might have had cattle or something like that. But what we want to get out of this is is this and, and hear this. If you were a part of God's people, you were under a sacred obligation. This wasn't a recommendation. This wasn't an encouragement for the elite, most spiritual people. Every believer was under a sacred obligation to give a tenth of their income or a tenth of their increase to support the temple ministry, to support those in spiritual service, the priests, and to provide for the poor. So that's what was going on. And yet... Malachi speaking on behalf of God comes along and says, you're robbing God. It'd be like, have you ever ordered a pizza and you imagine, you know, the pizza guy comes to your house and drops off the pizza. And when you open it up, it looks like this, like, wait a second, I've been robbed. I'm missing some of my pizza. That's my pizza. And somebody took something that belongs to me. That's exactly what God is saying to Israel. And in that, we see that God recognizes and wants them to understand everything they have isn't actually theirs, it's his. They're simply stewards of what already belongs to him. And sadly, they're living the way they've tended to live for about a thousand years. Like their fathers, and how often can we say like us, They were sinning against God, and they were sinning because they believed lies. This is how it always works. What were the lies these people were believing? Well, one, they believed that the lie that their money and their possessions were really their own. And God's reminding them, no, you actually are stewards. Everything belongs to me. They believed the lie that following God was a hassle, Religion was kind of an intrusion into their lives. So what's the minimum we can do to sort of check the box and be okay? That's a lie. The the reality was the temple was the place where their sins could be atoned for. They could be washed, forgiven, and made clean. The temple was the place of the manifest presence of God. They were a unique people in all the earth to be able to be in a a life-giving relationship with God. They believed the lie that obeying God would lead to miserable lives. Have you ever ever believed that? If I really do what God says, my life's just going to be miserable. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't really want to do that. And you know what God says? He says, if you'll follow me, you'll be so blessed that the other nations of the earth are going to look at you and say, wow. Look at that, because that's what God is like. So what I want you to get out of this is is the system that God set up in the Old Testament only worked if all of the believers were all in. It didn't work for some of them to be all in. It didn't work for some of them to be partway in. They all needed to be all in. And so he says, return to me. Put me to the test and see if I won't open the windows of heaven. So he's calling them to repentance. When we're robbing God, when we're disobeying God, when we're believing lies, the response is to turn around. The response is to repentance. The response is to think and act differently. So he says, if you'll repent, what does that mean? Well, that means starting to bring in all the tithes. Bring all the tithes, he says, bring, verse 10, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need. There's beautiful poetic language here. If I won't open the windows of heaven, and pour down a blessing. Now, remember, this was an agrarian culture in a climate, kind of like where I came from in California, where it doesn't rain all the time like it does here. It rains part of the year. So they're very dependent on those seasonal rains. And so opening the windows of heaven and pouring out a blessing means farmers are going to get the rain when they need it. That's what he's talking about. And if you'll, if you'll repent, if you'll return to me, he says, your families will prosper, your society will be strengthened, your businesses and your farms will flourish. And he's reminding them, I'm not doing this just for you. He says in verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. I mean, who doesn't want to live in a land of delight? Who doesn't want to live in the blessing of God? And this reminds us that from the beginning, from Adam and Eve's sin all the way to this day, God has been on a rescue mission to make his name great in all the nations. God wants all the nations to know his blessing. God wants all the nations to be glad in Jesus Christ. God wants all the nations to know that he is the king and the redeemer. And Israel was intended to be a witness to that. But they're they're robbing God and preventing that showcasing of God's greatness and blessing from taking place. 400 years after Malachi wrote this, God so loved the world that he opened the windows of heaven and he poured out the unspeakably generous gift of his own son, Jesus Christ, to be our redeemer, to forgive our sins, to remake us from a self-centered, selfish, fearful, greedy people into a generous people who can actually find joy and delight in giving. That's what we're celebrating in Easter week. So Malachi helps us see, let's try to pull this together. Malachi helps us see that God's people were under a sacred obligation to give tithes and offerings to support the temple ministry and to support the poor. The Old Testament teaching about giving reminds us and informs us that The God who owns everything has chosen, hear this, the God who owns everything has chosen to finance his mission to glorify his name on the earth through tithes and offerings from his people. So for God's people to fulfill God's mission and experience God's blessing, they needed to be all in with tithes and offerings. Now that's the Old Testament teaching, but we're not an Old Testament people. We live on the other side of the cross from those people. We live on the other side of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. How does that teaching function for us? I want to try to give you an illustration from a a picture. A number of years ago, we built a deck in our backyard. I love our deck. And I love the spring because we get to open the deck and sit out there and enjoy meals and have the community group over. And, and, and it's just a, it's a lovely place. And so we have all these deck boards. You can see those, those deck boards. And when we go out and use the deck, we sit on chairs and stand and walk around on those deck boards. But you know, those deck boards aren't just suspended in midair. Underneath those boards is this substructure. There are posts and joists. I know because I dug the holes for those posts and it was a lot of work. But you can't have the deck without what's underneath it. But when you're on the deck, you don't think about what's underneath it. You don't see what's underneath it, but you have to have it there as the foundation. So when we come to the New Testament teaching about giving and generosity, we can't understand those deck boards without the foundation of that Old Testament teaching that we've just surveyed functioning and being, be, being there as a supporting structure. So now, with that in mind, I want to turn to our question. Question, should I tithe to my church? And I'm going to take this question in two pieces. First, should I tithe? And then should I tithe to my church. Now, again, this may be the place where some are nervous and thinking maybe I need to get a phone call and get out of here right now because this is where Pastor Mark drops the guilt bomb, right? If you're expecting to hear, hey, you dirty, miserable, rotten sinners, stop robbing God and start paying your tithes, <laughs> you're going to be disappointed because you'll never hear that here. We don't work like that here. That's not the biblical teaching, and that's not the heart of Christ. Should I tithe seems like a simple yes or no answer, but it actually isn't, and the reality is Christians haven't always agreed on how to answer that question. The early church prescribed giving 10% as a minimum to its members. And some churches teach that today. And early on in my ministry, I've been a pastor for 35 or so years. I taught that. I believed that. However, upon further review over many years and reading and engaging other people, and this is the unified perspective of our eldership here as well, when we survey all that God has to say about tithing, from Genesis to Revelation we find the answer to our question, should I tithe, actually requires more than one word. So if you go back to that substructure, the Old Testament, there are some parts of it that carry over to the New Testament and some parts of it that don't. There's continuity and there's discontinuity, right? So, for example, there's no temple. We're not meeting in Jerusalem at the temple for this meeting. There's no priestly system. There's no sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled all of that, and he rendered it obsolete. But there is some continuity. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, as we heard in the pastoral prayer earlier today. Those things carry over. So how do we know what carries over and what doesn't, and how does that influence our understanding of generosity? Well, after Jesus' death and resurrection, read the New Testament documents carefully. After Jesus' death and resurrection, you will find there's a lot to say about money and generosity, but there is no command to Christians to tithe. In fact, there's no mention of tithing at all. So what do we do with that? Well, we, we need more than one word. We need to construct an understanding. And that's what we've actually been trying to do over the last three weeks. So should I tithe? Let me take that in three steps. One, God's generosity to us in Christ to be our Savior. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. We've become rich in salvation through Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. God's generosity in that way frees us from greed, from fear, from materialism. It frees us and makes us new people so that we can excel at the grace of giving. It's only possible because of the gospel. Okay, that's the first thing we want to say. The second thing, should I tithe? Only possible because of the gospel. Second, God owns everything. We have to know that and remember that and keep reminding ourselves of that because nothing in the world that we live in helps us remember that. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people and all who dwell therein. So everything we have comes from God. Everything we have belongs to God. And when we die, we're not taking anything with us. So everything we have returns to God. So what it means to be a Christian, this is why giving is a discipleship issue. We have to learn to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with what you've entrusted to me? Third, we have God's generosity, our stewardship. Third, giving away a tithe, 10%. That was an obligation we saw for Old Testament believers. In the New Testament, Jesus briefly mentions this requirement, but again, after his death and resurrection, it's never taught as an obligation for Christians. Hear that. Tithing, after Jesus' death and resurrection, is never taught as an obligation for Christians. So what is the standard? Well, if you were here last Sunday, you really heard the best one-verse summary of it that that I know in 1 Timothy 6, 18. Be rich in good works, generous, and ready to share. Now, I hear that. This is so important. The New Testament standard for giving isn't give X percent. The New Testament standard is be cheerful, faithful, generous, even sacrificial givers. If you want to fill that out, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That'll help you unpack that some more. So then the question is, well, okay, but would you please just tell me how much to give? No, I can't. But I can tell you this. How much should Christians give? Here's what we want to say to that. With new hearts filled with the Holy Spirit with the hope of eternal riches and eternal life and heavenly rewards, why shouldn't Jesus's people aim higher than believers from Old Testament times? Remember Malachi is underneath what we're talking about here. This Old Testament pattern of tithes and offerings is sitting underneath the New Testament teaching like those joists under my deck and so, We're in the realm of wisdom here, not in the realm of command. Okay? This is really important. For most Christians in North America, aiming for tithing as a minimum, a floor, a starting point, I think most most North American Christians can do that. And giving more from there as God leads and provides. But... It's not a law or an obligation. And not everybody's in the same situation. As we talked about last week, some people uh, simply aren't aren't in places where where you can do that. And so due to their situations and obligations, some people may not be able to start at that 10% floor. And that's fine. If you're in that place this morning, oh, dear one, rest in God's faithfulness. And there's never going to be a board out in the lobby with who's giving what. I want to encourage you to meet your obligations, be generous where pro- possible, and just begin to pray and plan to be able to give more in the future. In fact, we all want to be praying and planning to give more in the future. So should I should I tithe? or well, with new hearts filled with the Holy Spirit, the hope of heaven. Starting with that Old Testament foundation, that's a recommended rule of thumb as a floor and a place to start, not a requirement, not an obligation. Okay, what about my church? Now, let's, let's finish the question out. What about my church? Again, answering this question requires thoughtful and careful analysis of the whole New Testament, and there is no simple yes or no answer. Broadly, though, what we want to notice is this. The church is God's priority. Right? Hear that. Let that sink in. The church is God's priority. Jesus died for the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. Jesus is returning for what? For the church. If the church fails... There's no plan B for the world. All other ministries would be irrelevant and useless without the church. So two things to observe. First, the local church becomes like a family for Christians. Jesus, if you've been here for the series in Mark, you may remember back in Mark 3, Jesus forecasts this when he says, Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of God are my mother and brothers and sisters. Jesus is forecasting a refashioning and a re-understanding of family. So Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that the household of God is the church of the living God. Can you hear that? That household of God, that's family language. Families live in households. The household of God is the church of the living God. And so As Christians, your local church is your home base for your life as a disciple. Following Jesus works its way out as you worship in your church and are trained in your church and do outreach and are sent out from your church. And so giving to your church, there are some parallels with that Old Testament system of supporting the home base of the temple with all its ministries we saw in Malachi. And just as we would want to provide for our families, our own households, wouldn't church members also want to provide for our spiritual family, our spiritual household? And so we see this pop up in different places in the New Testament. Galatians 6.6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Where is that? hearing and teaching going on. It's going on in local churches. So there needs to be some kind of system by, by which teachers can be supported within their churches. First Timothy 5 teases this out a little more. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and I love this, this is so flattering. If you ever aspire to be an elder, you shall not muzzle an ox. Isn't that great? Very flattering. If you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That's a quote from Deuteronomy, the principle there. When the ox are, are, are treading out the grain, let them eat while they're doing it, okay? And while the pastors are teaching, give them some income. And then Jesus is the one who says the laborer deserves his wages. That's a quote from Matthew 10. So similar to the pattern of temple priests, believers are now called to provide financially for their elders and pastors. Galatians 6.10 adds another piece to this. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to who? To who? To everyone. That's the good Samaritan. That's who's who's your neighbor? What should I do with my neighbor? Show mercy, right? The good neighbor is the one who shows mercy to the people around him but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Can you see the prioritizing of the local church right there in that verse? Our church core value number five says this, the local church is the community where we live and grow as the family of God. Here's that family language again. So the local church becomes like a family for Christians, but it isn't just a closed-in family. It's actually a mission center. The local church is the engine for fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. How does that command get worked out as you read Acts and the epistles? What does it look like? What happens is you get these little Centers that are established in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Rome, Philippi. Centers where there's believers gathering together for training and equipping and worship and sending. So the local church becomes the place where we live out the Great Commission together. And we do this locked arm in arm together. I love the language of Philippians 1 verse 27. Paul, who's in jail, is writing to church members. Picture yourself receiving this letter because it's a group of people just like us here today. And he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, listen to this language, I so love this, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. So we link arms together, one mind, one spirit, contending as one person. And we, one of the ways that we do that, we do that in prayer. We do that in outreach. We do that financially. We strive together as one. The fact is, if, if we don't support our local church, who will? Have you noticed we don't have any corporate sponsors? Like this isn't the Wells Fargo auditorium, right? I don't have Under Armour on my, on my shirt here. You know, we, we don't have any endowments. We don't have any grants from the government. And hear this, RGC members, hear this. Everything in our church that we do, we do together. So you may not have kids and grace kids, but you're giving supports what's going on downstairs right now, making disciples of the next generation. You may never go to the Middle East to work with Kim Torres, who actually is secretly here today, or to Tokyo, or to be with Seda and Emma uh, uh, as they're planting a church there. But do you know that your giving enables us to stand side by side with them, planting the faith in the Middle East, in Tokyo? You're part of that. We're doing this together. Your giving helps support the counseling and the RGCU classes and the weddings and the funerals and that coffee that you had before the service this morning. We are striving as members side by side to build up the ministry of this church. And doing that financially is part of our membership commitment to one another. And you know, there's so much to encourage And I know there are people here who have lived this way and grown in living this way for decades. And I want to encourage you, if this is something that that you've found grace to live in, I want to encourage you, who can you pass that on to? Who can you disciple? Who can you encourage this? And if this is all new to you and it seems strange to you or bizarre to you or confusing to you, I want to encourage you to reach out to a trusted friend. Reach out to an elder. We would love to have more conversations about these things. Should I tie it to my church? We believe it's a wise practice, a rule of thumb, a recommended thing to do, not an obligation. We're not in the realm of law here. We're in the realm of wisdom. We believe it's a wise practice to make giving to your local church your first priority in your giving. The elders of this church want to encourage you to live this way. We want to urge you and encourage you to give significantly and generously and regularly and sacrificially to our church. How much? We're not going to give you a number, right? Because the New Testament standard is actually higher than that 10% that the Old Testament gives us. The New Testament standard is, in light of the gospel, be generous and cheerful givers. And so we'll let you work that out. But we believe it's a wise practice and not a law, but a good rule of thumb, to see that, that 10% where possible as a good starting place since this is your spiritual family and home base for God's mission. And again, we know situations vary, life situations change. Not everyone will be able to do this, and some people will be able to do far more than that. We simply want to urge you to excel in the grace of giving. And to do so more and more to your church, to the poor and needy, to other worthy churches and people and organizations. As I mentioned last week, by God's grace, these have been Leslie's and my priorities for our entire marriage. And we have not only no regrets, but much joy to report on the journey. And these, I believe, are the practices and priorities of your elders as well. Now, I know a message like this can raise so many questions. I want to encourage you to reach out to any of the elders. Reach out to a trusted friend. Pray about these things. Open and look through these scriptures. We'd love to chat more with you about this, if helpful.